the uh, class today is kind of, kind of unusual in that we're talking about an institution, the papacy, uh, as opposed to a church council or a particular church father. And the reason is that we're coming up in time after the Filioque controversy to a uh, dramatic turning point in the institution of, of the bishopric of Rome, which uh, affects church history and essentially creates the modern Roman Catholic Church. <clears throat> and this transition really all pretty much occurs in the 11th century. And so that's why we place the whole subject here, because it's where this happens in church history. But in order to understand what's going on and, and evaluate it, we're going to actually step back a little bit, talk about how this got to be this way, and then uh, carry through the consequences of the transitions that began in the 11th century. So I'm um, going to talk about papacy as a, a whole uh, entity rather than just this one period, but the period is a kind of a period of revolution. In the early church, <laughs> the basic doctrine of the Orthodox Church regarding bishops is that all bishops are equal. They all can ordain priests. They serve as their diocese. You can only, each bishop can only operate within their own diocese. If you go to someone else's diocese, you can't ordain anyone without the permission of the bishop of that diocese. The church, uh, took all of these equal bishops and it, it, uh, had them meet together twice a year in a synod to make decisions for their region. And they divided this up in order to be able to meet conveniently. You, you met by region. So you had, let's say, by provinces. And the most convenient place to meet was in the, the capital city of the province, which was called a metropolis. And the bishop of the metropolis became, it was known as the metropolitan, was the host of these synod meetings. As the host, in a way, we see him as kind of the chairman of the regional area. He is not a king over the bishops. We don't have bishops and then metropolitans as a higher order of being that rules over bishops. The metropolitan is a bishop. He cannot go into another diocese and even within his province and start doing things without the permission of the bishop of that diocese. But when all the bishops meet together, he is he's the chair and kind of has, let's say, some special prerogatives that, that as, as a kind of representative of, of speaking for the whole. But but in fact, the synod of the decisions of the church are not made by the metropolitan, who then informs all the bishops what they're going to do, but rather all the bishops under the metropolitan meet and make a decision together. Within the church, the whole Roman Empire uh, and beyond was divided up into these metropolitan provinces, because partly just because the Roman Empire was, that's how it was, it had provinces. Now, some of these provinces were bigger than others, and at some point, the Roman emperors uh, decided that they were too big and, and decided to break them down into smaller provinces. And two of these where this happened was uh, Egypt and uh, central Italy. And in this case, when you took a, a big province with a metropolitan city and you suddenly created three or four provinces, each with their own metropolitan city, well, then the question came up, well, what happens to the church in that case? Does the metropolitan 
of the old capital city, now does he just metropolitan over the smaller area of his new smaller province? Well, that could be the case, and sometimes the uh, church administration would follow that. But in some cases, the, there was a decision to just stick with the way things were, even though now there were theoretically all these new provinces and new, new metropolitans, but just to allow the old structure to exist. And in the councils, uh, this is where the Council of Nicaea mentions some of the leading seas, the question of Egypt and Italy comes up. Do Roman, what happened to Roman Alexandria when their provinces get chopped up? And the decision was to leave Alexandria and Rome with the original larger provinces. So that meant that they were, that the new metropolitans now were in some sense under the chairmanship of the original metropolitans the Bishop of Rome and the Bishop of Alexandria. This gave them a kind of larger status which came uh, to sort of be called patriarch. But a patriarch was just, in a way, it was simply a metropolitan of a large, pro- of a large church province. And even among these, metropo- these patriarchs or metropolitans, you... Still, each one took care of his own area, and then when they had to decide church-wide questions, they would all work together through something like a general council, or with, with our, our ecumenical councils, are those kind of councils, councils that had representation from larger, not just from one uh, provincial region, but from outside. And so that we sometimes talk about the five patriarchs, Constantinople, uh, uh, Rome, Alexandria, Antioch, and Jerusalem, and how there was kind of the cooperation of the five patriarchs, you know, in the period of the ecumenical councils. But even beyond that, the patriarchs represented some the larger sees, but there were other uh, metropolitan sees. And then there, of course, just the fact that all the bishops, ecclesiastically, are, are uh, in terms of grace, they're all equal. And that's why when you have a synod, you don't just have oh, just the metropolitans show up and decide, but or just the patriarchs come. It's all the bishops come. And they make the decision. And that's why you have hundreds of bishops at these councils instead of just five patriarchs doing deals to decide what the doctrines are going to be. Now, this is the way things were for a long time. Occasionally you would have, you know, the, the patriarch of Rome would sometimes be a little uppity and uh, want to push that people should follow him because he was considered the uh, first in honor of the various patriarchates. But in general, when you see the history of the council, you had, well, you gave respect to him, but the council's decisions are made by everybody together. So even where he may have come down on side of something, uh, they don't just say, okay, well, we have to listen to whatever the Bishop of Rome says. And they say, well, let's decide. And, and sometimes they decide he's wrong. Now, we get to the 11th century. And, well, let's see, even before the 11th century, some, some things start to happen in the West that are different from uh, in the East. The first of these was, the, was remember back we did iconoclasm, the, the iconoclast emperors tried to impose iconoclasm on Italy, and the troops in Italy rebelled and let the Lombards kind of take over, and the Bishop of Rome now was cut off from the protection of the Byzantine Empire and had to appeal to the Franks. So you had the relationship uh, of the Pope to the Franks, and then the 
when the Franks took over the Byzantine territories of Italy, the uh, Pope came up with a document called the Donation of Constantine, which did two things. One is it said uh, that territory really belongs to the Pope, so the Frankish king gave it to the Pope, and it became what's called the Papal State. And this made the first uh, change. One, uh, something that you don't have in the Orthodox world. In the Orthodox world, a bishop is in charge of the church. <coughs> he does services, divine liturgy. <coughs> He's a pastor. But he is not a ruler. In the, in the, with the emergence of the papal state, the Pope became a secular ruler. He now owned a country and had to rule that country. So that was something different uh, <coughs> that we don't have in the Eastern Church. Secular, secular rule. <coughs> it also placed him kind of under um, what the authority of the of the kind of not authority, but kind of needing the friendship of the Franks. The other thing the donation of Constantine did <coughs> was it made a lot of uh, claims which <coughs> didn't get <coughs> much attention <coughs> at the time. But the donation of Constantine. Essentially, is where Constantine uh, seems to, you know, kind of uh, leaves the Pope uh, kind of authority over the entire Church and the entire Empire. So he becomes uh, that the Pope is over over the Church and the secular and and the Empire. And this uh, does not really affect. Uh, church thinking for quite a while, but the donation becomes part of a group of forged can canon law documents, which are called uh, the Pseudo-Isidorean Decretals, that were made in Germany around 850, and that uh, base kind of the they base canon law. On, they give a lot of uh, protections to bishops from secular authorities, <clears throat> but it kind of bases the all canon law kind of refers back to the Pope. <clears throat> and this uh, notion of Constantine is included in that kind of prominence. Now, this all is happening in the context of the breakdown of Western European society. There's the, you have the Empire of Charlemagne. Charlemagne uh, introduces the filioque into his court, so you have the church of the German church now having the filioque that the rest of the church, including the Pope, uh, the, the Pope uh, Leo III, tries to stop him from using the filioque. The second, you have a count church council with uh, Pope John VIII, I think, who agrees that the filioque should not be in the council in, in the creed. But in Germany, the filioque continues to be used because the German church kind of starts to go off on its own. This donation of Constantine and, and Pseudo-Isidore become part of the German uh, ecclesiology as a way of combating uh, feudalism. Feudalism is where... Yes, go ahead. What's the date of the donation of Constantine? Uh, it would probably be the um, late 700s, and the Sudisidoran Decretals is right about 850. Does anybody at all contend that the Revelation of Constantine document is genuine? 
And not that I know of. Not anymore. No. But they, I think it was debunked in around the 1400s. Yeah, that's right. So it was considered authentic in the West until then. And that's why, yeah, of course, when you, when you read the document, you read the decrals, well, then you realize, well, where did Roman Catholicism come from? It comes right out of these documents, because that's exactly what's taught is this papal monarchy. So, looking at this, of course, it's the uh, will of an, of an emperor that shouldn't take the place of church teachings anyway, but you say, well, of course, uh, obviously Constantine believes that the Pope is the king ruling over the whole church and everything, uh, so, so why don't you other patriarchs accept it? But, in Germany, you had, uh, with, the, with the feudalism, after the Empire of Charlemagne, you had a breakdown of authority due to the Viking raids, the breakup break up of the uh, Charlemagne's empire. And in this breakdown, uh, feudalism is where the Lord uh, kind of gives out the positions under him in return for uh, loyalty. And what happened was that the church... Uh, positions became seen as part of these local feudal possessions. So, if you had a bishopric, you know, in your territory, well, that was your that was one of your uh, vassalage that you could give out. So, somebody wanted to be bishop, well, then, you know, what were they going to do for you uh, in return? And often they had to they would buy, you know, what they have to get to a hundred thousand gold coins being paid for to be to be bishop. For, so that the ten-year-old son of some nobleman could be a bishop, <laughs> uh, and the other with abbeys, the same thing. They all had lands, they had incomes, and so they begin to be sold. And this is the simony, which is the selling of ordination, but in, more particularly, I guess in this case, the selling of church positions. Now, at this, with the breakdown of the West, this was seen as the church becoming kind of too controlled by. Every little local lord exploiting the church's positions for his own profit. The way to get away from that at first was that the, as the kings started to reassert their authority in the 900s and uh, the re- recreation of the German Empire was, there was an attempt, the king was kind of trying to regularize things. So you had uh, this, in Germany, was kind of a royal reform movement. Uh, where the king, kind of acting like the Byzantine emperors as guardians of the church, tried to uh, take get rid of abuses. Now, on the other hand, they also used these positions themselves and made the bishops and abbots into like royal officials who worked actually in the administration in in helping the uh, and they were given control of cities and large lands as a way of not having to pass those lands out to some noble who might then want to rebel or make his own dynasty. So you would just... Uh, so they used the church to build the empire, but also they were trying to uh, make sure that there was some worthy people and not just anyone who wanted to buy a position. In the context of this reform movement, uh, the German emperors uh, started reasserting trying to assert control over Italy. Uh, where Charles had gone in 800 and been crowned as emperor, they now start coming down around the year 1000 and having themselves crowned as emperor down there. And as part of this, uh, the emperor Henry III, in 1046, appoints his chaplain, Clement II, 
as as Pope, and his chaplain naturally introduces uh, the filioque into the services. But something more than that happens. The filioque is important, of course, because that was already something that the East and West had both condemned. But so this is the, so the practice of the German Church, which had been condemned by the Pope and by the Eastern Church, has now becomes the practice of Rome by force of the of this uh, imposition. But with uh, Clement comes a whole group of German uh, reform bishops, and they install themselves in Rome. And after Clement's death, the emperor appoints his cousin Leo the, as Pope Leo the Ninth, who was a very active. German reform bishop, and uh, there are these group of cardinals, uh, Humbert, uh, Hildebrand, and Damian, who install themselves in Rome and decide to, to, now that they have control of Rome, that because the way they've developed this kind of theory of canon law, they, they now have control of the ruling see of, of the church, and they intend to use it to progress the reform movement back in Germany. So the popes, the Germans become pope and realize the papacy is a great tool to kind of then go back to Germany and institute all these reforms that they've been wanting to do. But the ideology that's introduced is this coming out of the decretals and the donation of Constantine is that the pope, the papacy is a monarchy over the church. And so, it's kind of uh, amazing how quickly things start changing. Uh, in so 1046, and 10, by the time you get to uh, 1054, nine years later uh, or eight years later, the, you have Cardinal Humbert, one of the uh, ideologues of this new vision, goes to Constantinople and excommunicates the Patriarch of Constantinople because. He does not, because Humbert goes there with the idea that the Pope is the ruler. The, uh, there's a disagreement about the filioque. Okay, the Pope wants the filioque, which is now, it was just introduced to Rome for the first time in 1046. Suddenly, but you, you don't have the filioque. Well, you need to have it, and you need to obey the, be in obedience to the Pope, because he's the ruler over the whole church. And of course, the Byzantines have never heard of any of this stuff, and, you know, last they knew the, uh, there was a, the Pope had, had a church council with them condemning the filioque. They never heard of this, that the Pope rules everyone. So they wouldn't go along with this. So, oh, well, then you're outside the church. You're, you're heretics because you won't be in obedience to the Pope. So this created the schism of East and West. And at first, the schism started out kind of a, of a personal nature, but, uh, but in, in fact, it was based on these completely different ideologies. And actually, before I go on, I just want to mention some of the books connected with this. Uh, the one that seems most apropos is this uh, book, The Eastern Schism by Stephen Runciman. I would say it, it does cover this, uh, gives a lot of interesting historical things. Uh, however, it's primarily coming from an entirely Roman Catholic point of view, although it professes sympathy for the East its presuppositions throughout the analysis are Roman Catholic. It also has, uh, when, it when he discusses theology, 
the number of errors, very strange errors, that uh, because he's not uh, he's a great Byzantine historian, but not particularly a theologian. The uh, from the Orthodox side, uh, this part of the Saint Vladimir's uh, Church History series by Aristides Papadakis, this uh, Christian East and Rise of the Papacy is excellent. Uh, covers a number of other topics as well, but he he does a great job here, and he's uh, definitely giving us from an Orthodox point of view. So, he's, but he covers the development of the medieval West as well as talking about some of the things happening in the East. And then a little later, we'll talk about further developments. And there's another book by Stephen Rinsman called The Sicilian Vespers, which uh, talks about the struggles between the papacy and the empire. Uh, which we'll talk about in a few minutes, and that's that's an excellent book because it's a historical study, and he does a very good job with that. You said the Germans were very accommodating to the Spaniards. Well, the, in Spain is where it had been introduced, but then Spain was overrun by the uh, Moors, and so apparently some refugees came out, and the Filioque came into the territories of Charlemagne, but Charlemagne specifically. Well, he was looking for a way to discredit the Byzantine emperor because he, once he became emperor, he wanted to be the only emperor. <laughs> actually, even before he was, he was wanting to discredit them, and so he actually was attacking the Seventh Ecumenical Council. Uh, and one of the things that he found to uh, attack was that they didn't have the filioque. So he decided, you know, that that was a heresy of the of the Byzantines. And, yeah. Right. It really was about iconoclasm, but he, you know, he was looking for things to, to find wrong with it, and so one of the things that his court theologians found said, well, they didn't use the filioque, so, well, that's the heresy then, and they, uh, and so then he instituted, he was, uh, Charlemagne instituted the filioque in his court, because that was a distinctive doctrine where the, he felt that the Byzantines were deficient, and so that was a way of kind of showing himself as more sort of a champion of orthodoxy versus these degenerate Eastern uh, emperors. So uh, that's how Germany kind of became different from the rest of the church. But then once they, with the resurgence of empire, they became, they took over Rome and they were able to combine that with this new idea of a papal monarchy. It's, it's amazing how that almost continues be a, a model of how heresies and schisms happen. Somebody mm-hmm. takes a, a specific, you kind of zero on a specific doctrine mm-hmm. that they somehow feel like they can say, well, I've got this right and you've got it wrong. Yeah. And, and they may be the ones wrong about it, but they take it out of context and they create a whole other church that yes. continues to happen down history. But then, yeah. Yeah, that's, uh, that's right. And this is in case where this uh, really, uh, not out of hand, but it, it, it's so amazing, though, it, it sort of happened so quickly that you immediately go to the schism. And although what he points out is that the schism, in some sense, was just not necessarily permanent at this point, but that the, but because the uh, this change in doctrine, this introduction of this doctrine of evil monarchy, it made it inevitable that you know this, this schism, in fact, was permanent because because that didn't change. So every every time there was an attempt to reconcile between the East and West, papal monarchy got in the way, and then the more evidence that that became that was not going to change on the in the West, um, there was sort of less hope of any kind of reconciliation. Yes. 
I was wondering, the Pope that ended up putting the Filioque into the creed, was he one of the German Popes? Yes, that was, I mean, that's what he was, uh, Henry's, uh, Henry was the emperor from Germany, so that was his, it was his, uh, chaplain from Bamberg, he's buried in Bamberg, Bamberg Germany. Clement II. Clement II, yeah. Yeah, and then uh, Leo was the cousin. So, but then uh, after Leo, we had uh, the uh, person. Well, there's a couple of things that I guess we talk about. One, let me start going, jump ahead a little bit to the Crusades. But go ahead. Yeah, the Crusades impact the East. In 1081, the Byzantine armies were largely destroyed by the Turks, and the there was a call for help from the west to the west to see if there was any troops that would come help them. And this Pope Urban preached a crusade and sent armies to the to uh, the east. The armies mostly were there to fight, get territories for themselves, not so much to help the uh, Byzantine uh, or even the Eastern Christians. But the significant thing ecclesiologically is that when they went everywhere they took over, which uh, at first place was Antioch which was supposed to go back to the Byzantine Empire, but they kept it, and then Jerusalem. And ultimately, in 1204, they took over Constantinople. Uh, well, they didn't just go there and liberate these places from the Muslims and liberate the Christian populations. They went and took them over and then called back to the Pope and said, okay, we have Antioch now. Send us a patriarch. So, okay, great. Here's the patriarch of Antioch. Here's the patriarch of Jerusalem. Here's the patriarch of Constantinople. So the significance is that when these uh, Christian cities were taken over by the armies coming from the Pope, that the people in the cities no longer could elect their own bishop, that often their own bishops were just simply thrown out, and <coughs> the Pope appointed the patriarch. Now, from the point of view of Orthodox ecclesiology, bishops are elected by their diocese. Right? So you have... Uh, and the metropolitans and patriarchs the same way. They're, they're, they are bishops of larger cities, but the cities elect, the people in those cities elect their bishops. And they're approved by the local bishops of the province. Uh, in the new papal thinking, well, there's no, uh, all the other patriarchs, that they're no longer all equal bishops being elected by their local people. The, the brother patriarchs are just simply appointees now of the pope subservient to the Pope because the Pope is the king and he'll appoint who all the patriarchs are going to be. So what it, it kind of manifested in the East was the, what this doctrine of the papacy now meant was not uh, that, that all kind of canonical tradition of the Orthodox Church was being overthrown and uh, a sort of dictatorship of one person replacing the church replace, uh, was what was happening. So the uh, Kind of papal appointment of patriarchs, uh, it kind of manifests the uh, essentially that the Roman Catholics are no longer are, are overthrowing the local, trying to overthrow the local canonical order, and essentially then creating a patriarchates which don't are not canonical rep patriarchs of their own of their own uh, patriarchy. Now, that's, uh, of course, it's also sort of the violence of the, uh, that under, sort of sponsored by the Pope, the, uh, 
forces of, of the West were ruling over <coughs> the people of the East. And then when uh, Constantinople, when uh, the, the uh, Eastern Patriarch recovers it, I mean, excuse me, Eastern Emperor recovered Constantinople, well, then he's excommunicated by the Pope because he's rebelling against not only his rule over the Patriarchate, but that the popes became then feeling that, well, their rule depended on the rule of Western crusaders in the East. So if local Christians wanted to rule themselves, well, that was a rebellion. So even this Emperor Michael, Paleologus, uh, Michael VIII, he, he even went so far as to agree to a union with the Pope, but still, the Pope still excommunicated him and supported, uh, was supporting a French uh, ruler to attack him and take over Constantinople, not because, by the fact that Michael had <coughs> freed Constantinople, that was a rebellion, even if he was willing to become, even if Michael himself was willing to uh, submit to the Pope, <coughs> that was not enough, you know, the, that uh, he wouldn't, he was not willing to tolerate independent rule. <coughs> so it became not only kind of a imposition of ecclesiastical rule, but even kind of imposition of Western civil rule as, as being a requirement for not being excommunicated. Okay, well this naturally uh, kind of showed to the Orthodox people that this is, this is somehow a different church than theirs because, uh, you know, they had, well, because they had a whole canonical tradition besides the Filioque and besides these other things. And now, in the East, I mean, excuse me, yeah, back in the West, very quickly, things began to change also. Uh, once the, the first pope, the emperor's cousin, worked very hard traveling around Germany with his, co with his cousin, the emperor, trying to reform abuses. His uh, followers, though, the, you know, the theologians in Rome, when, when he died, quickly came to the conclusion that this was not good enough, uh, that, the em that the Pope could not just be kind of an assistant to the Emperor, but that, in fact, uh, the position of the Pope was so exalted that he really had to kind of replace the Emperor. In this period, in the Middle Ages, well, the Emperor in the Orthodox Church, for example, was the one who calls the Ecumenical Council. Um, the Emperor there has a, has a kind of large role as kind of the defender of the Church. And in the West, this was expressed by the uh, term the Vicar of Christ as applied to the Emperor. Well, the, uh, and, and the term, traditional term for uh, the Pope in, in the medieval times was the Vicar of St. Peter, uh, although St. Peter also founded Antioch, and, you know, but they identified the Pope as somehow inheriting Peter's positions uh, uniquely. But they also decided that, well, this is not, you know, that the Emperor is not the Vicar of Christ. The Vicar of Christ on Earth is really the Pope. So they uh, began a big struggle, which initially started out over uh, who should be the one to uh, invest a bishop or abbot with their position. And in the feudal uh, usage it would, you would come to the to the king or the count or duke or something, and you would get your uh, your staff and your your appointment. And then the pope said, "Well, no, the the pope has to be the one to uh, appoint everyone." And then they fought a battle over it, and eventually uh, agreed that to split it up. And the pope gives the appointment for the ecclesiastical position, and the 
the king gives a position, uh, appointment to the administration of the lands, which because uh, they had secular, because these were essentially feudal holdings that the bishops got as well. <clears throat> but this began a struggle, an ideological struggle that didn't just stop with this question, which is uh, who really was kind of uh, the uh, ruler over the church, and, 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 and the Pope ended up kind of winning the struggle. But, but initially, the, so that the kind of the character, the sort of semi, uh, well, the Christian character of the emperor in the East. I mean, the, the, Christ, the, the emperor was never a bishop, but he was seen as having, just as all lay people had, a role in the church. That that uh, the laity, you know, has to elect bishops. The pope, I mean, the, the emperor, in certain states could uh, object to elections. He he had a, a, a voice in many church uh, matters, just as, as in a way everyone did. But the uh, the new development here was that lay people, first off, that lay people don't have a voice, the emperors don't have a voice, that essentially the Pope is kind of the sole ruler. And what immediately happened was that change in the way uh, popes were elected, both to eliminate the influence of the emperor, but also to eliminate the influence of the people of Rome. So the, the bishop of Rome is no longer going to be elected by the Romans, and it's not going to be influenced by the emperor, but they made a college of just the German the German bishops that came down to decide, well, we are going to, from now on, decide who is going to be emperor. So they, so there's basically this group of German reformers come from Germany and say, well, this, is, this papacy is so important, we need it, so we're just going to we can't let other people decide who's going to be Pope. We need to be the deciders. And this became uh, College of Cardinals. And this, it developed uh, through the Middle Ages, but the point was to keep it as a group that would not be influenced uh, by external forces, which in this case, particularly the, the people who canonically, who elects, who elects the bishop, the people of the diocese elect the bishop. Well, for the people, these reformers from Germany, I mean, they couldn't care less what the people of Rome wanted, because, I mean, it was, well, although it was their bishop, but as far as they were concerned, the, the papacy wasn't really anything about to do with Rome. It was this kind of world ruler that they needed to empower their movement. So they had to cut all those people out the, uh, the canonical electors out of the picture and just uh, monopolize the election themselves in a certain sense that's uh, kind of a little bit like Patriarchate of Jerusalem uh, has a similar problem where you have kind of detached the elections from the people who are actually being uh, uh, at, and who are at hand but uh, so you have uh, Kind of the separation of the, of the papacy from the from its own church, and this was part of a whole movement towards uh, what we call clericalism. And it, in fact, clericalism can really be seen. Uh, the other thing that developed right here is this uh, paper, uh, not paper, but the clerical celibacy. These changes come about very quickly. In this, in this very few years, out of this uh, reform agenda and the and, and monopolization of the papal power, uh, clericalism is that the church, the, the clergy, 
become a separate group of people who essentially are, they sort of ultimately kind of identify themselves as the church, uh, separate from the laity, and then kind of uh, want to monopolize control of the church within themselves. The celibacy became insisted on as a way of, of uh, because if you have families, you know, you have to have support from your parishes and your things. So, to, in order to kind of to separate, to, to get rid of all um, influence from the secular world, you wanted to make your clergy not dependent on anybody in the secular world. So that the church could essentially, the clergy could essentially be withdrawn from the church as a whole and become this self-sustaining group of people. And that's, uh, we, as, you know, I don't know we have official, but people usually refer to this as clericalism, the identification of the church as the clergy itself. And then, of course, the celibacy, which has become a big issue in the West, is part of, again, this withdrawal of the church. Uh, both become kind of central to uh, Roman Catholicism. And, of course, in the East, we don't have uh, the, the uh, celibacy of the, of the clergy, except in the case of the bishops. But we also, the clericalism is occasionally, the, the, sometimes you get the ideas coming in, but in general, the Orthodox Church, in its own teachings, does not... Uh, is not accepting clericalism because we see the church as the whole between uh, including the, the lay people. I mean, we, if you've ever seen an ordination, you have the people saying axios and uh, same with the consecration of the bishops uh, have the participation. And also with the idea of the church council that later we'll see the council of Florence where the bishops under the emperor's prodding agree to this church union with Rome. The people, The bishops get back to Constantinople, and all people say, "Well, we're not going to accept that. That's you know ridiculous. You know, we're, we're no no accept the union." Well, from the Orthodox Church, the the, peop- the Holy Spirit worked through the people to reject the decision of the bishops, which was a mistake. Um, in the in the Western Church, you wouldn't have this. Uh, the, basically, the the decision of the bishops that would be you know the that would be the, de- the decision of the church, and it really wouldn't matter what the people thought about it. So that, and out of this, you also, uh, I think, comes this. I don't know if it comes so officially, but the uh, it kind of it, it puts us on Latin and and the, uh, kind of not wanting to have translations because, in a way, uh, reserving kind of the uh, knowledge of the church teachings to the clergy, if it comes in a language such that no ordinary people can understand you. It's a, it's a gradual development there. That wasn't something decreed in Rome in that time, but it's kind of, I think, an outgrowth of this whole idea of, of withdrawing, of making the church into a separate realm from the rest of the Christian society and a superior one. So therefore, you want to isolate it. Uh, of course, these are things that lead to the Protestant Reformation with wanting to uh, bring the scriptures to access to ordinary people and also to uh, the rebellion against the idea of a kind of separate clerical caste ruling everything and which are quite rightly reactions to uh, false things. Yes? Um, I was also thinking uh, members in the Christianism as a pasty that I mentioned that celibacy was also instituted because you had people that were passing down bishoprics from to their children, basically. Right. And they wanted to get rid of that type of thing. Yes. Um, 
said, well, that is a problem. And they, they did the, because the church lands, just like all feudal lands, could be passed on within families. And so, yeah, in, in a way, I mean, uh, in the Orthodox Church, we don't have, uh, mar- the, we have, let's say, uh, celibacy of, of, uh, of bishops, probably for a similar reason, to avoid that, uh, temptations to, the rule of the, of the property, but in the case of the parish uh, priests, of course, we we have the marriage because we know that they're going to be out working with ordinary families. But this, in the Western case, they extended uh, celibacy to to all of the clergy as a way of making a complete break. But that's uh, yeah, I, I think it was a mistake on their part. But I think it, and I think it's a mistake coming out of this uh, attitude towards the rest of the church. Which perhaps I think is motivated by the doctor, the, the way that the church is looked at in like these documents like the Donation of Constantine where it's looked at as a monarchical rule over everyone else as opposed to the church being all of us together with some having different uh, roles. The uh, struggle between, one of the consequences of the struggle against uh, secular authority was the re- removal of a religious dimension from secular rule, and uh, in one of the Western developments of uh, that we worry about today is secularism. And we, we talk about this and how terrible that is that you know people in the secular world see themselves as kind of totally cut off from God and living their life without reference to God. In fact, it was a, a sort of goal of uh, this movement was that basically they wanted to replace the role of the secular person in the church. So I said, well, no, your job as king or emperor is purely secular. You have nothing to do with the church. The church is strictly for the clergy. You are not clergy. You don't have anything to do with the church. So this uh, split, uh, in a sense, the desacralization of ordinary Christian people and kind of uh, division of the of the society into clergy who are religious and the rest of the people who are not or or who are purely secular in their function uh, is exactly what we ended up with today. I mean, by design. So it's not just uh, some kind of strange decay, but that's where that's where this came from. You know, it's out of this essentially power grab by a small group of people. And then um, it was also helped by the in- introduction, I think, of Aristotelianism uh, in later with the scholasticism because uh, Aristotelianism plays into this same thing and then uh, of seeing the this world as separate from the spiritual world so therefore <clears throat> those who are in this world really you know are kind of cut off from the spiritual world uh, in their in their lives and it kind of developed a whole kind of secular theories of government kind of which uh, you know which are modern all the modern political theory comes out of uh, you know we don't well, although our constitution probably mentioned God in there, but I mean, it's sort of, in general, our political thinking all comes out of the idea that's totally limited to this world now, as opposed to look back at the Byzantine emperors and how they thought about what it meant to be an emperor. You know, there was always a reference to uh, the rule of God as being the guide to society. Well, this, by wanting to kind of shove the emperors out of the picture, uh, you know, they sort of deliberately pushed 
secular, created a secular society in which God said you can't have God in the picture because we, we own God over here. Now, this, after the uh, kind of ideological battle, there began a, uh, a physical battle, and that was the, um, the emperors, well, in the Byzantine, in the Orthodox Church, the bishops are uh, pastors of churches. They don't rule over things. And uh, so the fact that you're a bishop and if you're a bishop of the United States, it doesn't really bother you that uh, there's a governor in your state or that there's a president or that they, you know, the state is that, that you're in happens to be uh, governed by civil authorities. Uh, that's not really a problem because your job as the bishop is to take care of spiritual things and you you accept that. Well, the Pope's now having kind of a, uh, a secular realm of their own in Italy and uh, the old Byzantine territories of central Italy and pro- kind of professing to be the rulers over all Christians uh, didn't want to have the German emperors who were theoretically their, uh, the rulers of the territory you know, of Italy uh, they didn't want to have them actually ruling over, you know, having too much influence over them, although they claim specifically the central Italy. But they, um, the German emperors at one point inherited the kingdom of Sicily. And this was seen as a, a threat because if they own northern Italy and they own southern Italy, well then we might, you know, then they might have too much influence on our territories of central Italy. So it became a, a kind of object of the, of the papacy to prevent the German emperors from doing that. So they actually had a, a long series of wars and uh, excommunications of the emperors and actually crusades. The original, the original crusades were against the Turks and uh, Muslims, but then they started holding crusades against the uh, Holy Roman emperors <laughs> to, not because they even were heretics or something, but just because they wanted to rule their own territories of Italy. And the Pope said, well, that's too dangerous for us to have you rule those, so Unless you give that up, uh, you know we're going to cr- call a crusade against you, which they did. So you have this uh, struggle of crusades and excommunications of uh, oil, and the other thing that they, the the emperor, the popes claimed that they were <coughs> that they were the source of all civil authority, that the emperors were their vassals, and they could decide who, whether someone became emperor. And if they didn't like the way the emperor was acting, they could they could uh, they could tell all the people under the emperor that well this person's not emperor anymore. You don't have to obey him. So they have the rule the right to uh, to depose emperors sort of and, and rulers, let's say. And this began naturally. Uh, the, the, not only the emperors resisted this, but many of the bishops uh, resisted. Thought this was kind of crazy. Uh, and and uh, Sometimes with you know even a point go so far as to depose the pope and appoint another pope, but in Roman Catholic history those are seen as anti-popes uh, because the official pope is the one who is out holding crusades against the emperors to maintain the uh, papal authority. So, <clears throat> so actually we would say that those bishops who uh, and the you know the emperors and the bishops in those cases were orthodox and that they were trying to maintain the proper order. Of society where the Pope is not, you know, kind of a, a, a secular ruler. And they saw, you know, I think the, those bishops uh, rightly saw that there was something wrong 
But in the end, uh, the emperors and their, and their bishop lost out, and the pope won. In Italy, anyway, the uh, forces of the emperors were crushed. The last uh, emperors there who came in were, were uh, killed. The uh, emperor, the, the popes, brought in the French to uh, to kind of take over Italy for them to get rid of the emperor, so that they wouldn't have to be under the rule of the emperor, and kind of destroy the idea of, of the of the empire as an authority that might have authority over their territory. <clears throat> but the problem was the French. The people didn't like the French. <laughs> Uh, ruling Italy and they rebelled. Well, also he was at that time the popes were. Uh, this was the time of Michael VIII. They were they were supporting a crusade against against Constantinople, even though the emperor had become Uniat, just to reassert assert French control over the east. And uh, there was a rebellion, and that's what's called the Sicilian Vespers, uh, partly financed by the Byzantines, and a rebellion against the French. The uh, French popes. Kind of, as, as the French influence was being fought against in Italy, they got scared and went back to France. And so then you have this retreat to Avignon, the Avignon Papacy, sometimes called the Babylonian Captivity, but it's where the popes went to live in France for a long time. And here, uh, it actually, what happened is the papacy kind of thrived because all of a sudden we don't have to worry about Rome. I mean, it really doesn't, the papacy doesn't really have anything, from, in this new kind of papacy doesn't have anything to do with Rome anyway. We can much more efficiently have this up in France, where we have everything at our disposal, and um, so we have this tremendous growth of papal bureaucracy and the ability of the Pope to intervene into every diocese and essentially replace the bishops, the local bishops, as the people making all the decisions. So uh, when somebody did a study of the letters, so they. Reform popes who sort of began this whole idea of the papacy, they, they wrote about 35 letters a year. And that, you know, so even the, the Leo who's running around doing all this reform work, he's still doing 35 letters a year. By the time you get to the Avignon papacy, they're writing, the Pope is <coughs> writing about 3,000 letters a year. But, uh, 10, 10 letters every day. And because the Pope has now kind of set up the whole system of church government in which all, every Every decision made practically is being made by the Pope uh, instead of by uh, the local authorities. Yes, this uh, implemented everything very efficiently, but uh, it really uh, kind of this, well, this and the earlier period of, of having all these crusades, you know, calling the crusades to attack uh, to attack Italian cities, to attack German emperors, to have uh, you know German emperors killed. Uh, it was all you know. This is all of this undermines the spiritual authority of the church because it was so obviously of secular self-interest that, that the popes were not actually doing any of, you know, when they called crusades to go rescue the Holy Land, okay, that you know, sounds like there's some, could be pious motive, but to have, a, you know, an attack on Milan because the Duke of Milan, you know, isn't supporting the, the French control of Italy, well, uh, then that's a crusade, you know, with holy war where... Uh, you know, you'll receive special merits for doing that. That that didn't sound too disinterested, and, and even uh, some of the pious people at the time were scandalized by what the popes were doing. And so, in the late Middle Ages, there developed a great deal of uh, what's called anti-clericalism or kind of cynicism about the church comes out of that time, and it's because the uh, the popes were completely uh, reckless in the way they. 
they were so interested in, in I mean, a lot of what they, the way they were using the church was for their own personal benefit. At this point, you had the uh, Black Death came to Europe, uh, killed about a third of the people, and caused a great uh, crisis. And then you had the, the Hundred Years' War begin between England and France. And the Hundred Years' War is actually what ended the Avignon Papacy because the English armies running around France uh, burning things down. The French, even the French Pope said, well, this maybe isn't a good place to hang out. So they tried uh, reconquering Italy with French troops. That didn't really work. But then they 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 went back. But then when the, once they got there, some of the, the cardinals wanted to uh, go home. <laughs> so they split up. They they were kind of forced by the people in Rome to elect a bishop there, a Roman bishop. Then they, as soon as they did that, they went back to France and elected another bishop and, and another pope. And so then you have two popes. And this in the West, when you talk about the Great Schism, we think, well, that means between the Orthodox and the Catholics. That's not what Western people don't mean that. They mean uh, between the two different popes. And so you have this big schism, and so you have a pope in Rome, and then you have a pope in, in France, and the two papacies. So you have these, this giant system built up of absolute, you know, where the whole church is run by the pope, but now you've got two popes. And there was no way to resolve this because the pope is the top of the canonical order in this new canonical system that developed in the 1100s. So finally, uh, there was a return to orthodoxy a little bit in, the, in something called the conciliar movement, uh, which was sort of like, well, you know, the popes can't solve this, the cardinals couldn't solve it. Actually, cardinals only managed to make it three popes uh, that were all excommunicating each other. But So there was a turn to the church councils, and so they held a church council in which they finally uh, got rid of all the other three popes and put a new pope in. But as soon as that pope got in, uh, he immediately didn't want to be under church councils anymore and wanted to go back to the, the way it was, where the pope ruled everything. But he was back in Rome, so in some sense, what happened is that the uh, the bishops, the popes in Rome were just were now essentially uh, princes of this small Italian territory, competing with everyone else <coughs> for control, and so they became. Uh, uh, they were no longer kind of backed by France, or there was no more German Empire for them to rely on. France was out of the picture. So these popes, essentially their interests were uh, local to their families. They were trying to create dynasties to rule over the papal states and to fight with the other Italian uh, neighbors. And it uh, you know, was, was a struggle for them because they were a small secular state struggling to survive against other small secular states and they relied upon their families to do it so you had these dynasties of like the Borgias and the Rovera family that had very scandalous histories but they were essentially dynasties of, pap- of uh, the papal state and uh, then in order the way they, in order for the popes to survive their their main asset was their rule of the church so they essentially had to use the church as a way to get power and, and money to battle all these other uh, states around them. And so this kind of uh, further uh, lowered the prestige of, of papacy, but also um, particularly in, in what part of what had happened was in the other countries, 
the, what, their response to the, the Pope's kind of taking everything over and running everything was to sort of uh, nationalize their churches in a way that, uh, so like the Spanish church kind of, the Spanish king sort of, they were loyal to the Pope in one way, uh, nominally, but he, he kind of uh, united the Spanish church to kind of run its own affairs and keep the Pope at a distance. And England did that and France <coughs> did that once they were out of France. Uh, but the only country that really didn't have a strong national uh, government and therefore a kind of protection was Germany because it was, the empire had been very much weakened by the uh, struggle with the papacy earlier. And all these German states were uh, pretty much open to uh, papal fundraising. So you had all this heavy taxation from the Pope and then you had uh, the sale of indulgences and ways of getting money to finance the Roman state uh, activities in, in Italy. Well, this is what uh, ultimately caused the Protestant Reformation was that the uh, theologians in Germany said, well, this is ridiculous. You know, first off, uh, if you look at Luther's writing, part of what he's, uh, you know, probably what made his uh, kind of theological objection to indulgences so popular was that there was this broader dislike of the fact that all, that Germany was just being, uh, kind of uh, milks of all the money you know that it could get to go down and finance a, essentially a, a secular kingdom in Italy not really for the good of the church and this is uh, Luther's uh, what address to the German nobles I think it's called where he talks about that so they saw Germany as being victimized by a, a secular uh, post and, and this is brought about in uh, 1516 the Protestant Reformation. This is in which, uh, well, because and it, it, when you read all this history, one of the things that, that always shocks me is that uh, how did they get all the way to 1516 without this happening, you know, before? Because, <laughs> uh, you know, already by, you know, really when it, when uh, the German uh, so-called reform bishops, you know, take over, I mean, there's such a shocking uh, change I mean, obviously there were many people who, many bishops and rulers who opposed uh, these changes, but uh, somehow the church didn't split apart, you know, or they and they weren't able, unfortunately, are not able to stop the changes. Partly, I guess, because those documents were considered as as valid. So, if you have a donation of Constantine saying all this, well, then, you know, people say, well, yeah, you know, it does seem strange, but you know, the Pope, I guess, is in charge of everything, so. That became kind of the definition of uh, of being a, of a, a Catholic Christian. Actually, this is a there's a, a document called the Dictatus of, uh, of uh, Pope Gregory the Seventh, who's Hildebrand, one of the first of the Reformed popes, where he defines the papacy uh, almost as a kind of completely new uh, thing. It's not not a bishop, you know. It's kind of above the bishop, so like a, a being. One of the popes uh, describes it as the pope is not is lower than God, but higher than mankind. You know, it's a sort of intermediate being that's above the church and above uh, the above all the secular authorities and rules really rules the whole world. And so, anyone who questions that that the pope has authority over all the councils, he has authority over any kind of jurisdiction in this world, and and that he's. Uh, that he's uh, by being pope, he's automatically a saint because he's sanctified by the merits of Saint Peter. So this being, which 
is unquestionable then. And all, you know, so that, uh, that somehow won out <laughs> and became, oh, that, and that therefore you, no one could be a Catholic. Actually, one of the popes says that no one can be a Christian without being in obedience to the pope. Right, so the, yeah. Was it no, that there's no salvation? Yeah. No salvation without being obedient, yeah, you know. It's incumbent upon all people everywhere to be subject to the, to the pope of Rome. Yeah. So therefore, you know the the prime the prime uh, heretics uh, in, of this against this doctrine are the Orthodox. So that's why you know the, the West kind of ultimately kind of more and more during the time of the Crusade starts looking at the East. Well, you know these well we're fighting against the Muslims, but these people are practically Muslims because they're not in obedience to the Pope. So they that, the, that becomes the cardinal definition of being a, a good uh, a good Christian. Well, then they're not Christian because they don't obey. They put to know. Yeah. Did anyone that you're aware of uh, in the West after mm-hmm. you know, the Great realize what, what had happened in a sense and say, you know, gee, the West has really you know, changed and, and, and this, is, this is a distortion of, of yeah. earlier Christianity and why don't we get back to, you know... Partly, yes. Uh, I mean, there's definitely, I think, more work needs to be done here because a lot of people who cover this period, uh, to them, because they don't really understand, I mean, even Stephen Runson's book on schism is excellent. I mean, he talks about the, the East sort of sympathetically, but he, he never sees that as a viable alternative. So, so the uh, papal monarchy doctrine is seen as kind of inevitable. So whatever all this opposition to it is just kind of uh, chaff along the way that just gets well it's there it was all this opposition but it doesn't you know it doesn't have any significance because it's not seen as connected to anything but just people who didn't you know were didn't were getting run over by the pope's uh, political steamroller and uh, I think we need to look at those bishops I mean obviously there were councils of bishops who uh, excommunicated Gregory the seventh tried to put in an alternative pope. Uh, I think they are Orthodox confessors. You know, those are people that we should uh, we should be studying and, and paying more attention to them because that was people. There were there was an Orthodox resistance. There was resistance to the imposition of celibacy. Uh, there was all these you know that these people at the time saw all this as uh, as a change. Now some people have uh, identified like in. in uh, the, the Norman Conquest, you know, is kind of a battle struggle between Catholic and Orthodox, and I don't know whether that's so. I mean, perhaps the Anglo-Saxons, uh, you know, the way they represent the Orthodox world, perhaps more, but uh, whether they really would have, if they hadn't been conquered, would they have held out? I don't know. You know, or would they ultimately just have succumbed to? I, I, uh, that's something, I think, from an Orthodox point of view, it would be very interesting to, uh, way to study this period to see what I mean, considering these people were Orthodox, you know, they're, the fact that they had all these objections—that's uh, very significant, you know. And, and to what extent did Orthodoxy survive in the West, and how long did it survive before it was, you know, eventually snuffed out? But uh, that probably be a very interesting history. But unfortunately, it's a study I haven't made. But people who know more about uh, Western medieval history could probably do better. Yes. How did the Catholic uh, Church historians that you studied with, how did they approach this history of the papacy? They would just see it all as um, developmental and, well, as, as really positive, you know, that this 
this is kind of because modern Catholicism uh, is still very much uh, in the papacy almost it's the defining uh, thing because in, in terms of uh, as a modern world you know calls many things into question uh, you know it's not uh, it's not the scriptures it's not you know many you know there's all these you know it's, it's not any particular part of Christian gospel that the uh, Catholic Church sort of champions as their, uh, you know, rallying cry of unity so much as papacy. If you're, you know, loyal to the Pope, I mean, that's kind of the, at least in a public way, you know, that seems to be the, uh, the center point of Roman Catholicism now, uh, which, I, you know, I think it's kind of a, a result of, of this mis, misunderstanding of things, but that, that, that the, that, you know, this uh, philosophy, this uh, authority, power, power position of, of one of their bishops should become, you know, kind of the defining element of the Catholic Church, as opposed to, uh, <coughs> you know, the resurrection of Christ or, uh, you know, the spiritual life or something. But they also, I think, see this. They they believe in development, so they right. so that as that time goes on and these new doctrines develop, I mean, they they don't have any problem with that. This, no, this no. is all kind of just leading up to. Well, that's how they look at it. Is that uh, it goes up and up? So that's where they they kind of look at us, and we they say, well, theoretically, uh, you know, the Orthodox coming out are you know representing a part of our tradition, but. They don't, they don't have, but we're sort of left behind because we've never embraced all the new stuff. Anything else? One yes. other question. Uh, John Paul II has uh, made a lot of uh, noise in his pontificate about uh, uh, saying that the papacy is uh, you know, up for consideration with regards to making it... Uh, Palatable to the Orthodox, you know, to try to bring the Orthodox back. Uh, do you have any comments about that? Well, it would be great if they, you know, would uh, repent of of some of the heresies. Uh, and uh, but in my, you know, in a, in what so far, it seems like most of of uh, Roman Catholic ecumenism works on the assumption that, uh, as does this book, uh, the Easter Schism, that. That the schism is just a product of poor diplomacy. That, of course, the Pope is the ruler over the whole church, but, and it's, but the Orthodox, you know, and the Orthodox have not obeyed because the Popes have been too arrogant and, you know, and forceful in pushing this and not sufficiently, uh, sensitive and diplomatic. And so therefore, if we could only just be, you know, po- politic enough and, and, you know, make the right deals and, and, you know, allow for everybody's, uh, you know, little idiosyncrasies, then of course, then everyone would just come under the Pope and then everything would be fine. And so, I mean, in a way, that's the Catholic Church, uh, has tended, you know, that the sense Catholic doctrine has kind of shrunk, I mean, or let's say its influence, you know, on, uh, the doc, there's not that much doctrinal uniformity in recent years, but, you know, it's almost as if, well, as long as you're, you know, subject yourself to the Pope, then, you know, you can pretty much do or believe whatever you want. And so, you know, we just need to extend that same thinking to the Orthodox. Now, 
So that would be completely useless in my mind. Uh, you know, if anyone would, you know, the Orthodox should definitely not go along with that. But if they, uh, if they really were to repent of the errors made here in the 11th century, well then, you know, that would be great, of course. So you don't think that the idea that they, they would question the monarchical papacy is really up for consideration? Well, it would be a tremendous change if they did. And, and so far, you know, I don't see that uh, being reconsidered by uh, Roman Catholics in general. I mean, he may do that, but I, I haven't, you know, I, I would be really surprised. But or if the Cardinals were very good against that. Yeah. Well, there are, there are, there are uh, Roman Catholic theologians that are, are, are uh, entertaining that idea. Are there? Oh, okay. yeah. I've, I've read two or three books by this guy, uh, uh, he's in the from Egypt. Uh-huh. He's a, I think he's a Jesuit, uh, theologian. Uh-huh. And he just, he, he's willing, he wrote like the last five years or so, and he, he's willing to basically rethink the whole thing. He says, uh, uh, you know, he thinks all of those ecumenical councils after the seventh or eighth, yeah. You know the ones under the you know after the schism. Yeah. He thinks that that he, is, he sees a completely distinct character from them. And he says that, that we should, the Roman Catholic should be willing to consider those as local councils and not incumbent on the whole church. And uh-huh. you know a whole bunch of other things about rethinking the papacy. I mean, there are some guys in Roman Catholicism that are very well versed on the whole big picture. They're proposing some extremely what would, what would huh. be considered traditional, some traditional Roman Catholicism is very radical and very much in keeping with how the Orthodox think about what they ought to go. Wow. Well, that's, are uh, these guys, of those books. are these guys proposing that because of the desire to be faithful to, to Christ and the, you know, the ancient way or because, uh, they hardly believe in Christ and just want to have a, uh, a different political. No, I think it's Kahn Kuhn for right, example. Right. You know. Sure. Uh, I understand that. You know, and, uh, yeah, yeah, and he's kind of, a, he's basically a liberal, right? Yeah, yeah. He, he hardly believes any of the Christian faith, sure. but, but uh, he wants to reform the papacy just so that people like him can have a free reign. Right, right. right. And, uh, and this guy didn't seem to be talking about that. He seemed to, to, Trace the, the early, the, you know, the first volume of Economic Council and seemed to speak very highly of So I was, that was my impression. Well, that's encouraging. You might actually want to look into these books. Uh, I, may I just, uh, there's actually an interesting uh, uh, article. Okay. Roman Catholic uh, Encyclopedia. You, you got to see this. You come back in a second. Uh, okay. I'll just draw this for you. Okay. Uh, your a marker here? Yes. Great. Um, you can get this on the web. But this, this lists which popes were saints according to the Roman Catholic Church. Mm-hmm. Okay. And if you look, it's got the list of popes you know, all the way down here. And the ones that are highlighted in yellow are the ones that are the saints. You notice. You know, the first 35 were all declared saints. If you look at the percentage of popes uh, as saints, it's by the Roman Catholic Church itself. It, there, it, 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 this, this right, it goes like this, and it goes like this, and then it goes like this. And this, this basically is you know, 97% of the popes were declared saints and are classified by, by the Roman Catholics until about the year 530 or so. 
And then, if you look at it up to about, I don't know, this is like, you go past the hem, so you go to 865 or something. I don't know, you could put this in probably different places, but, uh, it goes down to 37%. And then it goes down to 3%. Wow. And, and this is what it's been from 885 until the present. Hmm. There have only been five popes out of like a hundred and... Yeah, from the point where Gregory the Seventh says that all popes by office are automatically sane. Yeah. From that point, <laughs> we've five out of like uh, it's, it's, it's about 150, 155 popes have been sane since 885 or so. But something really amazing happened. Hmm. Hmm. That is interesting. And, you know, trying to explain that is something that I'm interested in doing.